Dotnet Rocks episode 758, with guests Brian Prince, Shai Cohen, and Richard Garibay. Recorded live Tuesday, March 27th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. It's always amazing how they can get 45,000 people in this little room. It's a, yeah, it's packed in here. It's standing room only. But uh, hey, it's an evening session, and it's been two very long days. Yes. We've done a lot. Yeah, it has. So we're here at Dev Connections in Las Vegas with three very esteemed cloud personnel, and they're going to introduce themselves to you now. Good evening, Rick Garibay, uh, General Manager for Nudesic Connected Systems and uh, five-time Connected Systems MVP. I'm Shai Cohen, Chief Cloud Architect for iDesign and MVP and all that stuff. And former Microsoft. Former Microsoft, you should mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Brian Prince, former MVP, now with Microsoft. <laughs> ah, principal Cloud Evangelist for US. So we, we, have to, we have a, a former blue badge and a current blue badge, so there's two whipping boys. That's yeah. good. Yeah. They have an orange badge. Or one and a half. <laughs> and it, we don't count the orange badges. <laughs> good. I don't believe we've ever discussed the badge color thing on no, .NET Rocks, have we? Sort of gone with it. So the blue badges are the employees, right? Mm. Full-time employees. Full-time equivalents, yes. And the orange badges are the the vendors? Vendor contractors. Contractors, Mm -hmm. vendors. Also known as V-dashes. V-dashes. So they get access to certain things on campus, but not everything. Yeah. Kind of. There's also a purple badge. Do you know about the purple badge? Yeah. Yeah. The what the badge, badge is the business partner. I knew it was B, but I thought it was Barney. So yeah. <laughs> that works because <laughs> it was purple. That explains yeah. a lot. <laughs> and red partner. badge. Have you guys seen red badge? No. That's for children of FTEs. Really? Yes. So you issue badges to your children. Well, it's a tourism thing. Nice. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're talking cloud computing. We've had this conversation before, but the cloud keeps changing on us. So what has changed in the last year? I guess that's a good place to start. Has anything changed in the last year? Let me say, uh, I'm, I'm totally stoked about Hey Dude on Azure. Uh, Anyone want to take that on? Because I think it's a big deal. So, yeah, I will. Uh, we were, I don't know if you guys knew about this, this Dryad thing yes. we were building. We did a show on Dryad years ago before yeah. it was cool and hip so and then died. <laughs> tell us about it anyway. So Dryad was our, and to gloss over all of the details and hard work and stuff that people were putting into it, but we saw, wow, Hadoop is, Hadoop is this uh, distributed computing kind of framework that people are using in the open space world. And we said, well, that's really cool. We should have our own thing of that. So we started building Dryad, and we built Link to Dryad as well. So you could do language integrated queries into that, and it was really neat. And then we said, well, this is the new Microsoft. Maybe instead of building our own thing, reinventing our own wheels, we should just uh, integrate with and cooperate with these other great wheels that are already out there. So uh, we formed a partnership with the Hadoop organizations, and we will be supporting Hadoop uh, within Windows Azure, uh, as well as uh, contributing source 
uh, to Hadoop to enable uh, it to run really well on Windows servers locally as well as SQL servers and stuff like that. So. Now, let's back it up just a little bit for those who aren't very familiar with what Hadoop gives you. What do you get with, with something like Hadoop that you couldn't just do yourself? I mean, what, what is the value add? So the, the value add is not having to write the code that will rip apart a big mathematical problem. Okay. shove it across a bunch of servers, let them each do their own piece of the job, and then collect all the results back together. So it's distributed computing in the purest sense. In, in a terms scientific of, sense, yeah. In a scientific sense. Yep. Yep. I'd also say this. Microsoft is not just coming late to Hadoop. You guys have some clear contributions, because I've done Hadoop Apache style, and it's hard. It's yeah. like no fooling hard. You have to bring your own bucket of silicon and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. No, and it's uh, this. This will cost you years of your intellectual life to make it work right. Yeah. So, if you guys can narrow that down, I don't know that you have yet. If you can make that a little easier, I'd like some. Yeah, we've worked a lot on on the on making the tooling easier, making it very low friction, if you will, that sort of thing. And and I think you'll see this across other things that we're doing, like our node support for Windows Azure, which is another big thing this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And, uh, instead of uh, extinguishing the greatness of Node, getting out in front of uh, what a lot of web developers are going to start using and really make it a first-class citizen on Windows Azure. Have you Azure guys gone nuts? Are you just turning into We nice are people? the crazy people living in a van down by the river. That's what we are. Well, I think somebody said it in the speaker's lounge today that you can no longer say that Microsoft is uh, an evil empire. Now no. they can be just jerks. Yeah. <laughs> Moderately unpleasant empire, I think. But they're not evil. <laughs> but they're definitely not evil anymore. Yeah. Yeah, Be because it's not just I mean, hey, dupe. It's PHP, and right. yeah. WordPress, and Java. Awesome Java. support for uh, that's another big release we had in December was uh, Java and Eclipse support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can run just about anything you want on Azure. Yeah, if it runs on on Windows, it'll it'll probably run on Azure. Now, yeah. the the application scope for HeyDoop is purely scientific, or can this work with? Uh, can this be used for more commonplace business scenarios? Well, I mean, if you have a lemonade stand, probably not. But a financial analysis, uh, yeah. computational analysis, stuff like that. What is, yeah. yeah, what is sort of the metrics of wanting like Hadoop? Uh, running uh, really most use uh, Monte Carlo simulations and use those to kind of, well, if we raise the price on this portfolio a dollar, what's that going to do with our downstream revenue? You know, mm -hmm. and they'll run all these simulations to find out what might happen, and that's what they use it for. Wow. Yeah, I think any, anytime you have a stream, whether it's you know, uh, you know social stream like Twitter or you know, some metering or something that's typically going to be unstructured, I think um, Hadoop makes a ton of sense, right? And that's kind of the, the, one of the main problem areas that it yeah. solves is uh, actually you know, get in there and, and kind of map reduce across unstructured uh, right. data and find, come back with an answer. But yeah. wasn't this what OLAP services are supposed to do in the first place? OLAP services? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, is that something we... That's had but didn't have any SQL Server, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think the key really difference is yeah, that still relies on, you know, a data mark, you know, relational kind of data store. Yeah, but I got right, great right, tools right. for that. Yes. I can take all that data, I can run it through SSIS, I can spit it out into... Right. But that's assuming you have tabular relational data. If you want to deal with unstructured data, and if you want to do things that scale, so not on, you know, scaling SQL Server is possible, but, it, but it's hard, especially in the cloud, right? But you can do that, and you can break it up into chunks and then spread that over an infinite quote unquote number of servers. Right. That's where you get the skill. That's where you get the ability to do that thing to the max without the cost of 
you know, a high-end uh, SQL implementation. So yeah, but when you say infinite number of servers in Azure, I think infinite price tag. Well, he had air quotes, too. So I had air quotes on that. It's hard to see that on radio. But, <laughs> but you yeah. pay for what you use. It's better than going out and buying an infinite number of servers so, yeah, and, and putting right. them in your infinitely sized So when is SETI at home contacting you guys uh, for, for <laughs> Actually, there's a oh, some of the Brian Hitney and some of those guys from East Region, so the Carolinas and so on. They are doing a folding at home type project with Windows Azure. Really? Yeah. I wish I had a URL for you, but I. Wow. Yeah, so, awesome. I, good. No, I was. You, you mentioned simulations, Monte Carlo simulations. I imagine that you know when these when these simulation <laughs> applications begin to really take hold, that more mainstream businesses will, will want to look to them for all sorts of things, not just, you know, not just uh, financials. Well, I think, I think that's just a unifying thing the cloud can do, yeah. is lower that barrier of entry. I don't even have to know what that is. I don't right. have to go and build the infrastructure, yeah. spend years of my life doing this, putting this in. I can just go use it, right? No, now, when cool you said, this is very interesting to me, when you said, you don't have to write all that infrastructure to take a complex mathematical formula and chop it, the data into chunks. Do, how do you do that? So what if I have formula and data? Now what do I do? Do I just spread the data out into Hadoop? Does that automatically happen? Do I give everybody a copy of my algorithm? How does that work exactly? So um, generally, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not a Hadoop ninja. But generally, you'll have unstructured data that's in a shared source, yeah. shared repository. And you'll have all these nodes that are running pieces of code, pulling the data out of the same place. And, um, and, and there are tools, right? I think Excel is involved, can be involved. And Excel's involved now as the client. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and uh, I think you express it as, as equations within Excel. Okay. Right, and then that'll. Yeah, and I think the distributed nature, and I'm not a Hadoop expert either, but I think there's really kind of two two aspects to it. One is, I want to bring in disparate data from different sources, and there's a, I think it's Hadoop file system or so, some yeah. some acronym, um, and, and then there's also I need to kind of scale that compute across a number of different nodes to actually get the job done yeah. within you know a relative yeah. period of time. Yeah. So it seems like it's an easy, easy, relatively easy process. Yeah, and Hadoop is really kind of on the edge between big compute and big data, where I'm working right. with big instructions, where we have Windows high performance computing server, mm -hmm. and we have that support for in Windows Azure as well now. So I can have, uh, so HPC is very similar to Hadoop, but it's more about um, giving each node a chunk of the data and a set of instructions to run each. So there's a marshaller that kind of gives you a piece of the work completely isolated to do. And, and collect that together. And so you'll have a head node with a bunch of drones. Traditionally, those would be very expensive servers on premises. Now you can have your head server locally and just say, go spin up 10 servers in the cloud, right. do the work, shut them all down when you're done. You can actually even do a hybrid where if you have some work on, some capability on premises, um, and then you, know, you can start using that, but if you've got more work that needs more compute power, you can cloud burst, you can go and, and, uh, and burst into Azure. Is that really about just trading time for money kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. Yeah. So, well, I see that can be a very compelling option. I mean, they're probably, in, a, in any given system, pieces that can't run in the cloud for whatever reason. Maybe there's laws against where the data can reside. I mean, that's a big stumbling block for a lot of people, you know. Yeah. Now, the data has to be in the state of California or whatever. <clears throat> when it's in the cloud, it's wherever. We don't know where it is. Well, you do know where it is. I mean, you can specify where it would be in the cloud, right? You can say, I want to store this in this particular data center. I want to store this in the, you know, the 
West Region Data Center or something like that. And if you know where, the, where, where, this, where it is, then yes. Okay. Um, you can control where your data is, that, absolutely. But there are so, only so many data centers. But there are only so many yeah. data centers. So if you need it to be on your, in your city, then maybe not. Yeah. But there are other limiting factors that would, would mean that some aspects of a system need to run. Locally. Yeah, HIPAA, PCI often come into yeah. play. Yeah, sure. Right, sometimes you have a mainframe. Right. And, yeah. and you, as you know, try as you might, you can't take that mainframe up to the cloud. So um, the hybrid scenarios where you have some applications, where you have applications that some of them, or part of the app runs on premises, and yeah. part of it runs in, the, runs in the cloud, I think we will see a lot of those yeah. as people migrate and leverage the cloud. So it won't be, you know, there's some applications that are classic kind of cloud-only applications, where you go and you know, it's like, you know, I'm gonna build a website, you know, for, uh, some 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 promotion that I'm doing right now, and then right. I'm going to take people's you know emails, and it's going to be a voting thing and stuff like that, or whatever, and the raffle at the end, right? That thing, why should I host it on premises? There's no there's no reason sure. for that, and for those, and in fact, there's there's actually good reasons not to host it on premises because once you do that, then you got all this residual effect of okay, well, it takes me it takes me a long time to get the machines, and when I'm done with them, they're going to be dust collectors until the next right. thing comes up, right? That's yeah, I think to your point, Shai, I mean, I think there's a organizational maturity kind of curve to, you know, truly taking advantage of cloud computing, right? So if you look at no design patterns in place to kind of take advantage of platform as a service, hybrid is, is becoming much more of a mainstream approach to, you know, keeping the assets on-prem that either for psychological or other reasons just aren't going to move, right? And then kind of making that incremental um, step where this makes sense to move, you know, X and Y workload and then kind of compose it. Um, across traditional trust and, and network boundaries. Well, you mentioned yeah. platform as a service. There are third-party companies out there that that's what they do. They take your existing applications and they move them to the cloud without having you to do anything, you know, like Apprenda, for example. What, if, what do companies like that bring to the table? You know, I'm always trying to figure out what's their value at? What, what is it that they do? Well, I think a lot of times it's it's a matter of really looking at, you know, what the, what the value proposition is. And I think, uh, you know, healthy competition is always... Uh, a good thing. I think overall what we're seeing, um, and I think if you look at kind of the learnings um, that, that, that Microsoft has kind of demonstrated over the last you know, year and a half is um, the reality is that you know, platform as a service, as uh, interesting as it is, um, isn't necessarily where all customers are today, right? So sure. I think that um, you know, platform as a service kind of starting to pop up across other um, vendors makes a ton of sense, but the reality is a lot of customers are really looking at infrastructure as a service today. Um, when you look at Azure, um, you know, one of the things that really made it unique and innovative is truly being a, a very uh, differentiated platform as a service offering. Mm -hmm. I think the reality that we've learned and what we're seeing is that you know, some customers for, you know, I refer to it as, as both you know, lacking or, or not being ready from a um, you know, psychology or chemistry perspective, just really aren't ready to take advantage of the They want to run service. their VMs their way That's right. in the cloud. Right. Yeah. But, That's right. <clears throat> right. Right now, that means EC2. Well, it could be, but but uh, what's what's really interesting is that at that point, is it really cloud, or is it just a fancy way of hosting? Right. Right. And even even if you look at at Amazon, they're not a pure infrastructure as a service play anymore. Uh, they do have platform elements, you know, in terms of of, of uh, data and how they host it, um, how they will host it for you, and they run their you know they'll run a database for you and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So. I think that there's a very blurry line between what is a platform as a service, what is infra who provides platform as a service, who right. provides infrastructure as a service, and I think that different things are offered in different ways. So even right. if um, even if you do use um, say AWS, but you might use their cache as a service, 
you know, um, right. as, and, and, and that you don't want to run that thing yourself. So the spectrum on which you find yourself is a continuum. It's not sure. discrete stops. So what you're really talking about is companies that provide services that make your move to the cloud easier for one reason or another. I think so, and I think to answer your question in terms of you know some of the other um, vendors out there, one that I've been extremely impressed by is, uh, is called Boomi that was recently acquired, well, I guess, about a year ago by Dell. Um, and, and Dell Boomi is all about basically taking the idea of infrastructure as a service and platform as a service and kind of taking it to that next level, which is software as a service. And if you look at Dell Boomi and kind of their, their value proposition, it's really about uh, if you are an information uh, worker and uh, have people that understand what the endpoint configuration is, say, to Salesforce.com or Dynamic CRM, both on-premise and in the cloud, you're basically creating a composition within a web design surface, which essentially is, is now that next level, right, where um, the, the, the business is, is empowered to kind of uh, create these compositions. So I think, you know, things like that definitely keep us um, as, as Microsoft advocates on our toes, and I think it's a really good example of, you know, some of the really interesting things happening um, within the other, you know, the vendor ecosystem. We are pushing on the concept of, of composition, you're saying, I want to, I like dynamic CRM, and I like it in the cloud, so I pay by the user. So it's really a software service play, but it doesn't do everything I need it to do. Right. So or, I want to be able to add to it. Yeah, or if you think about kind of the idea of a, of a business process, right, or, or a unit of work, right, mm -hmm. that may compose a number of different endpoints, just as we would, you know, uh, decomposing our solution from a big ball of mud into components, right? Um, in today's day and age, you're going to have certain assets or endpoints that reside on-premise behind the firewall, others that are going to be available on uh, commercial and, and other vendor private clouds. And I think um, and, you know, today's and modern phones business process, and tablets and, absolutely, right. it kind of spans all, all of those uh, yeah, so, dimensions. I mean, I'm going to push back on the CRM idea because I like the concept, but I'm thinking, all right, I, I want to tie in my call manager internally to the dynamic right. CRM. Right. It's really, how do I get to tie these two things together? Well, that's a great point, and that's where you know hi hybrid capabilities like Azure Service Bus, which is a phenomenal um, capability for really enabling these hybrid scenarios really comes into play is I need to be able to, you know, reach behind the firewall and actually, you know, hydrate entities or, you know, transact some kind of a, a record update uh, into maybe my call center metrics or something. Mm -hmm. um, those, those are scenarios today that we're seeing with customers, you know, every day. But, but today you largely have to write code to make that integration. Yeah. You know, I, I think we always dream of that we go through this cycle of wanting the drag and drop, right? The, the business can <laughs> say, can, yeah, which is totally drag and drop. Uh, <laughs> not. And, and it should just be that easy. And, 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 I, and I think as software evolves and we add 10 or 12 more abstraction layers, we'll get there. <laughs> I spent two years of my life working on Oslo, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, who bring you Telerik Reporting. Every business app comes with a requirement for visualizing data. But why bury yourself in coding endless charts and grids when you can add interactive data visualizations quickly and codelessly? And what if you have to export and print these visualizations? Well, there's no need to code any of this. Try Telerik Reporting, the powerful ad hoc reporting solution for your web, desktop, and cloud apps. It's the easy way to create stylish, interactive .NET reports in a fraction of the time. It supports both relational and cube data sources, report embedding, and exporting to PDF, HTML, Excel, and Word, all in a single seamless package. Visit Telerik.com reports to download a trial copy. Telerik Reporting. It's fast, easy, and interactive. 
And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Question from the audience. Hi, you have a question? Yeah. Uh, is there a difference between virtualization and cloud? Difference between virtualization and cloud? Yes. Shy? Yes. There is a big difference between virtualization and cloud. When you talk about virtualization, you're talking about, <clears throat> especially from, from, uh, from which angle are you asking? You're asking this from an IT person's perspective, from a developer's perspective, from both, because from, it's complex. In general. Moment. In general. We are working with not well-defined terms. Uh, terms. Yeah. And this is uh, obstacles to, to talk to every, everybody about this subject. Okay. Right. When you talk about infrastructure as a service, a lot of times people would say, well, what's the difference between this and virtualization? We talk about platform as a server or software as a service. Um, those things are more you know, distinct in what they are. But the infrastructure as a service is always the question. And the difference is that when you do virtualization, in most cases, you're still dealing with machine names and you're dealing with specific things in, a sp in specific places. Whereas where you go to the cloud, you're talking about unnamed resources, where you can just spin them up, spin them down, you can do as, however many as you want. And the way that you manage that and the way that you administer that is very different than the way that you will administer or manage virtual machines, where you, you know, they're just a way to cram more compute power, more computers um, into the same physical box. Yeah, and I would say that virtualization is, is certainly a foundational component <coughs> oh, um, absolutely. Of, of cloud computing. Absolutely. Um, which, which yeah, I think just to kind of, I think to, to your point, right, I think the main distinction is, you know, self-service enablement, right? So to Shai's point about you have a pool of resources that you as a user and consumer go ahead and say, yes, I want this or that. I think on-prem, on when we think about virtualization, to your point, right, there's still a lot of machinery involved in spinning up VMs and doing your clustering and allocation. But I think there's, there's um, great progress being made, I think, in, in Windows Server 8 um, is coming a long way in kind of providing some of that self-service right. provisioning, which I right. think takes it to that next level. But as even well. with self-service, which is absolutely a dis um, distinguishing point right now, you still have the location dependency as opposed to the location independency of the cloud. So who says virtualization has location dependency? Because I think generally we talk about virtualization, we're talking about copies of virtual machines. Right. And so, right. and I, I would argue, and I think you hinted at this, Shai, that once you own the virtual machine, the value of the cloud goes down dramatically. Because right. now you're responsible for the OS, you're responsible for the patching. Right. You might as well just be a Host service provider. Yeah. It's not really all that cloudy. So, so the, you know, the, the industry has come up with their own definition that uses fancy words like elasticity and self-service and a utility-like in the way that you pay for what you use and those sort of things. So if you have a very sophisticated virtualization platform uh, in your own internal IT, that's great, but that's not cloud computing. You know, I think that's probably maybe proto-cloud computing. If, if, yeah, if you actually take those three aspects, and if you want to, <clears throat> it's not elastic, because it will grow in scale to, it, you, you're hitting a limit. Right? The so amount of servers that you buy. Of serve, yeah, it, it's, it's how much you, so that's one. The second thing is you buy, you're paying for capacity, not per use. So if you bought a machine that can hold you know, eight virtual servers of this particular size and, and, and capacity, then that's what you have. Whether you're using them or not, you're still paying for the machine. If you're spinning one virtual machine or all eight, you still are doing that. And that's the elasticity angle. Question? It is a question of how you account resource, use of resources 
I counted with money. And yeah, but uh, <laughs> very simple count. You, no, nobody said that virtualization has restriction in number of processors, for example, or storage. So you can create data center with mm -hmm. 2,000 processors and mm -hmm. storages and declare that this is virtual system. And aren't, aren't we heading down so, that path of this private cloud concept? Yeah, where I, think, we have I, think, yeah I think you're starting a certain to capacity internally, and we can just right. grow it out as much as we want. Yeah, I, I have I have this this wonderful slide that I use in in, in my uh, my cloud um, course that uh, that you know has this picture of a pool next to the ocean, right? And that's that's kind of the the comparison that I like to make. You know, yes, you can call it private cloud, but in fact, you're a pool. And there's so much that you can do with that. And you know what? It could be exactly what you need and fine. And, and, and I'm judging, it's, right? it's a style of not, management. Not at all. Not at all. And, and in fact, there are, a lot of, you know, there are a lot of great solutions out there for things of that nature. And in many cases, um, you know, it's, a, it's an easy way for an organization to start using cloud computing in an environment that's safe, that's familiar, and stuff like that, and eventually, uh, as needed, can move up, but the thing is still that in an organization like that, I want to talk about two main concepts. There's, there's capex and opex, right? Cap, capital expenses and operational expenses. There's always a capital expense somewhere. The question is who bears that expense? And when you're using cloud, public cloud, you don't. Your company doesn't. You're paying for use. You're paying for use of the resource, but not for the actual resource. Like renting a car. Like renting a car. Let's call data center company that virtualize its resources. Yeah, and there's no question, but I think if you take a step back and think about you know, how, how we got here, right? You have you know, Amazon and Microsoft who have engineers that have you know, built entire careers around making sure that you know, Amazon.com and Microsoft.com are never down or Hotmail's never down, right? And the opportunity basically was, hey, we have a ton of capacity, right? Some of which we use, others we only use during peak time, so why not kind of make this an offering to our customers? I think to Shai's point, you know, internally, you're either going to be over-investing in your capacity, which is a waste of money, or under-investing in your capacity, which is really a huge risk of, of delivery failure. Which is even right? worse. Which is even worse, <laughs> right. right? And so you're kind of stuck in this, in this continuum. Now, I think to the point that Brian made, there are companies that do it and do it well, right? But I would argue that for the, you know, the average medium-sized, uh, you know, even some of the larger scale enterprise um, organizations, you know, looking at cloud computing um, as really that next step from virtualization, just like platform as a service is that step up from infrastructure as a service, is, is really more than just the distinction between virtualization. So the thing is also that companies like that that specialize in cloud computing, not only is their hardware cost cheaper, their energy cost cheaper, their labor cost is cheaper. Yeah. And this is some interesting numbers. Um, IT to server ratio. Okay? In small companies, it's about one person for each 30 servers. Okay? That's kind of industry standard. Highly efficient organizations, it could go up to one to 500. So it's an order of magnitude or more. Okay? One to 500 large companies. They, they got automation. They got the whole thing figured out. In the cloud, it's one to 15,000, okay? 
So the ratios there are staggering. It's not even the same game. So this cost saving that they can have running that stuff in the cloud, running a cloud, is so big that they can still make a profit and offer it to you in a price that you cannot pay yourself to do it at home. And I think we have another question here. Question over here. Uh, yeah, just very quickly. So if, let's say, you're, um, you lead your C, uh, CEO or CFO or some key stakeholder in a hallway and they say, what is, what is a cloud? So can you give a cloud a definition in a long technical term really quick? Like, yes. It's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it. I, uh, one thing I, sometimes when I talk to business see people who don't really want to learn the technology, because that's why they hired us, uh, is that it's really just another option on how we run and host our services. It's so freaking I can, cheap. That's yeah, I can, I can do it internally, <laughs> I can do it at a traditional hoster, I can do it at a cloud, and we go back to the elasticity and the, you, the, the utility concept, right, and the pay for what you use concepts. It's a, it's a way to acquire the stuff that we need for our software on demand at scale. Right. That's it. So there's typically a low cost to entry with the cloud. Whereas if you want to get a SQL Server online on the web, you're paying 25 grand for a license for that SQL Server. Or you could pay 30 bucks a month to Azure to, to, to get your stuff going. And then as the demand for that SQL Server grows, your cost will grow. But it's going to be a long time before you burn through 25 grand. Then they then they probably gonna say why you request such a big money last year to invest on local data center or whatever. It's a very good question. <laughs> so why does SQL Server cost twenty five thousand dollars? Nobody said you were gonna keep your job. That wasn't a requirement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, last year we didn't have that offering. Now we have it, so we should take advantage of it. Is that fair? I take it. Because <laughs> last year you didn't send me to Dev Connections, I didn't know about it. <laughs> That's right. We've got another question here, guys. What are today's pain points with cloud computing? Specifically, uh, I'm mostly interested in from a development perspective. I, th I think with Windows Azure right now, for example, uh, and there are ways to soften this, but the, uh, you know, when you go to deploy a, a, an app, even for, let's say, QA testing, there's kind of a 20-minute life cycle there to get those servers created and started up and the code deployed and wired up yeah. and, and live. Certainly, certainly work yeah. for that. So, the, yeah, I mean, you could do the web deploy thing for a pure development. Mm -hmm. um, and there's the code barriers, like uh, any, anything that writes, if you have a web app that writes to the file system, for example, that has to be rewritten. So well, you, you have well, to think um, stateless, can, right? Yeah. I mean, you can I attach a non-trivial thing to talk about point. migrating apps to the cloud, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, think, I think that's from a developer's standpoint and and that's a challenge that I see um, constantly, is you have to shift how you're thinking. You don't develop software in the same way that you did before. Writing software that's gonna run on one or two servers is not the same thing as writing software that's gonna run on you know, X, insert your number, uh, 500 servers. Right? The way you think about things, the way you deal with errors, the way you know, that you deal with with, uh, with designing software to run at scale, if that is indeed what you want to. You don't have to. You don't have to be writing software that runs at mat, you know, gargantuan scale. But if you, if you do want to write software that runs at cloud scale, you gotta run it, you gotta write it, architect it, design it, and, write, and implement it very differently than what you would for a, your typical, you know, um, one, two server kind of website. 
I think there's, there's, that's one of the truths of cloud, right? Is cloud computing. If, if your app runs like crap on-prem, I guarantee you it's going to run like crap in the cloud, right? And so <laughs> cloud don't fix stupid. Cloud, that's right. Cloud yeah, so, so a lot of times, you know, and that, that kind of sometimes becomes a distinction between whether you're going to embrace infrastructure as a service versus platform as a service, right? The point that Shai makes is absolutely correct. When you're thinking about platform as a service, you really do have to think about how you're um, partitioning your logical layers, and, and you have no choice, right? The cloud imposes a distributed physical uh, model. Um, infrastructure as a service, you know, is is an alternative if you want to take your app and run it in the same kind of environment, but just take advantage of the economies of scale of a VM in the cloud. You know, that certainly is an option. But yeah, I think I think that 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 maturity curve is one that, that can definitely be a blocker. Right, and to really leverage the benefits of the cloud, to really leverage the things that you can get from running in the cloud. You can take your app, and even if it is a migration path, so take it, so, you know, first you just run it there, and then you, you look at your data structures and you say, okay, well, this thing is not really, doesn't really need a SQL. Let me use some sort of table store, big table, or Azure table store, and, um, and leverage that because the cost is, you know, it's fractional. So, and things of that nature. You know, I'm using, you know, maybe I should do things different. So, there's a way to migrate gradually leveraging more and more pieces um, of what you're doing. Question here at the front. Yes, um, I have been told. I have been told that if you, if your, if your organization has to implement HIPAA, you really will have a lot of problems trying to use Azure. HIPAA. Yes, HIPAA. So, so the short answer is it depends. Um, <laughs> if uh, so, every company interprets. The great thing about standards is everyone inter interprets them differently. So it really depends on how your company chooses to enforce and, and, and follow HIPAA. Generally speaking, and I forget the name of the, the requirement, there's a, at some point when you go up through the levels of HIPAA where uh, the vendor has to sign uh, an agreement with you, and, and Microsoft will not do that with customers today. Uh, and, and so you can do anything up until that level, HIPAA-wise, fine. Beyond that, because we can't sign that today, uh, you won't follow the, the requirements. Right? So, so a lot of people will go to the hybrid architecture where parts of the system are running in the cloud and parts are running local um, with security boundaries in place to, to help with that. So another question. Um, can I implement something like table storage locally in my premises? Or so that, something that's, like blob storage? Yeah, so, so that is one of the pain points like today, right? Like what storage? Yeah, like blob, blob storage. storage. Blob storage? Right. Yeah, so the question is, you know, there, there's, there's kind of this, this, this lack of fidelity today, right, um, in terms of some of the capabilities that you're going to use. So if you're going to use, you know, table storage or blob storage as a backing store, you know, that's great in the cloud, but from an overall application lifecycle management standpoint, kind of testing and whatnot, um, there definitely are some gaps, right? And so um, I think I think what we're going to see is is you know continued commitment um, from Microsoft in, in in making that alignment. Now, what that looks like precisely with regards to those capabilities, uh, we don't know. But you know, kind of goes back to the kind of the design patterns discussion, right? Is you know you you have to really think about um, almost shimming your 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 components, right? Such that you can kind of toggle between maybe I'm writing to you know SQL traditional SQL on prem, but then I flip a switch when the same app runs in the cloud, and now I'm hitting uh, you know, storage or, or uh, table storage or blob right. storage. And you have to design your app so that it won't depend on, so, the, so the, that shim layer will abstract the fact that this the SQL server behind this, so you don't take dependencies on SQL server features. Um, I, were, you talking this, were you talking about this for development or for production? 
Well, for production, like if, if, if for any reason HIPAA, for, for example, I cannot use a storage in the cloud, can mm -hmm. I have like a switch that then I just use my local right. storage? So, like Rick said, sure. through, through a shim and, and, and clever implementations. Think um, of it as a proxy or a, or a service agent pattern, right? Where, you know, I, I, I need to be able to abstract mm -hmm. those implementation details, which really don't belong at the upper layers anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's very similar to, you know, if you, if you ever worked with like web services, right? Mm -hmm. The whole idea of a proxy is to provide the illusion of a local class being consumed, right? The reality is that all those wire details are, are kind of Now, out, this is at a cost of coding and cost yeah. of effort. It's not going to yeah, perform right. the same. It's going to be different. Yeah. But the yeah. short answer is there, there isn't a product locally that you can run that it that is blob storage or table storage that that's the same as what we have right but you know we, we have the emulator for development but not for production but those are you know connection strings in your data layer as far as I'm concerned yeah I mean, and some coding I mean it's not that's not a trivial coding. effort you're talking about yeah. but a couple could, unicorns be and a leprechaun in yeah your exactly <laughs> so Carl yeah Richard you ever embed Excel into an application ugh you know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. All right, another question back here. I think the scary thing for me as a developer and as a business owner is the, I don't know what you call it, I guess the SLA donut. You know, we use a hosted data center with virtual machines for our catalog server. We use CDNs for images. We use an SMTP service for email forwarding. We use um, uh, a credit card processor service. They all have wonderful SLAs, but they don't have the courtesy to fail at the same time. So when so, so, something goes down, you go like this, right? Well, it, it's, it's <laughs> many points of failure, and, and, and I love the the Netflix chaos monkey idea of shutting something down to keep your service going to make sure that you plan for that kind of failure. And we try to do that. But when my mother is in her jammies and she's trying to order something from the catalog and she can't process her credit card, she's not coming back. If the, if the car dealership that receives the order doesn't get the email till late, the customer's not coming back. So. I love not owning the hardware and having all the all the stuff on premise, but the cloud can be somewhat scary from the standpoint of depending on people that I've never met. I guess so could it be a simple too. cost analysis though? You know, what am I saving versus how much am I losing in sales? Right. Well, and that's that's not a new problem. If I had all of those services inside my company, I could CDN could still go down, and the the merchant gateway to the credit cards could still go down. Um, it, the problem is when they're internal, you probably don't have a, a stipulated SLA, or you do, but no one cares about it, right? Yeah. So you don't even have a you business have relationship in place. But you know, one of the challenges I think that 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 you that you raise is is you know at least when you own the services, to Brian's point, right? You have some control because you understand the business impact 
of what services come up first, right? Does email come up before the CRM database versus the catalog, right? So, so in the cloud, you know, one of the challenges, and I think that we've seen this and learned uh, this in recent outages, is everybody's the same. Right, so they have no idea the value of your catalog coming up before um, some, you know, CRM database. It's it's the database that's down and, and being restored incrementally, you know, throughout the, uh, the 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 entire globe. So that is something that you have to contend with. Um, and I think that some of the learnings that we've seen is is really looking at things like CDN, right, and, and having a backup plan for when the inevitable happens, right. One of the um, kind of overreaches of, of cloud is that, you know, cloud's never going to go down and we know that that's not the case, right? But the SLAs are a very important topic and you have to understand those and, and hold your vendors accountable. And one, one other difference between hosting things on-premises versus going to the cloud is that you can have more than one email provider in the cloud. If you're hosting your own email server and it's down, you know, maybe you have another one, maybe you don't. But if you're, you know, you're sending mail through that particular gateway and that gateway is down and you can have a backup plan that says, well, I'm not going to switch to this other gateway or this other CDN or this other thing. So you can focus on your core competencies and how you provide actual value to your clients rather than, oh, I'm going to build, I'm going to write my own email server that's going to be more reliable than this email server that I, that I, this is not how, as you said, as a business owner, this is not how you best leverage your uniqueness and and provide value to your customers and ultimately you know get the profit for that. Guys, the big cloud players have had substantial outages in the past year. Mm -hmm. Is it a crazy thing for us as architects to be thinking about building redundant versions of our apps between the cloud providers? You, you have to, and you should be. Um, that, that's not, well, I don't, I'm going to argue on the have to, even though I've suggested this idea, because that's not a trivial expense. And if I'm going to build a version well, of my product in EC2 and another version in Azure, that's an awful lot of development costs. That's not free. So, so, so the, the, there, there are two things in there. Well, let, let's, let's separate the problem from the solution. Right? The problem is I'm concerned about outages. What should I do? Mm -hmm. The solution could be I'm going to write software that is going to run you know, on both clouds, maybe different or some of it's running on-prem um, or a version of it. Or you could say, well, interestingly, there are multiple data centers. That's right. So what are the chances of all of the systems being down all over the world, all at the same time? Just thinking about that last Azure outage in February. So that was a, that was a booger, right? That was a whopper, wasn't yes. it? Yeah. Yes, and it's always the simplest things. But I, th I think understanding the, the geographical nature of, of the data centers <laughs> and, and being able to fail over and kind of planning that strategy is key um, because the chances of all data centers being down all is, over the world is, is very low although we, we've not seen zero and that was somewhat between, higher on february 29th that was very much 18 yeah. hour outage was it something yeah. like that and that was a logical failure not a physical failure so how, how long would it take your dns servers to kick in and propagate that there's a new that there's a new server it depends on how they're servers. set up but you know your time to live has to be very short well the windows azure dns is the ttls are a minute i think they're yeah, very very that's, short that's where they should be yeah so, but, but again, this isn't, an, you, you should still architect for a data center failure anyway. Even if it's your own data center, right? The, the biggest enemy to a data center is a backup. So you still have to architect, even if you've built this whole thing internally, you still have to architect for failure, whether that's, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the bulkhead patterns and, and things like that. Think of on 9-11 when everyone went to CNN.com and crushed the, that, that data center. And they had a, a bulkhead that kicked in that said they went to a static page 
instead of a dynamic page. Or, or think of a, a big e-commerce retailer where those orders, if the, the, pay, the credit card gateway goes down, those orders wait in that queue until that comes back online. You can still take the orders, the customer still is happy, and the credit card just gets processed 20 minutes later instead. I mean, there's a big distinction between having a disaster recovery site of your own where the same set of code just runs in another location and considering the prospects of, I need to tolerate an 18-hour Azure outage globally, and so I need a different version of my system to run on a different platform. Albeit degraded, perhaps, but perhaps. still being able yeah. to deliver some, some service, yeah. We touched on this the last Dev Connections when we did a cloud panel. What is the actual SLA for uptime in, in Azure, anyway? Is it 99.5%, something like that? Uh, it's, uh, depending on what part of Azure you're talking about, it's either three nines or three and a half nines. Right. Mm. But in either way, Microsoft is refunding money to folks from that out. Yeah, and we're the only vendor that does that. Yeah, I think it was 33%. Of, but, but we're refunding everyone. Yeah. We're giving everyone, a, even, even if you weren't affected, so to speak. Because, I mean, not everything was dark, right? right. There were yeah. uh, three of the six data centers were affected and that sort of thing. And so mm -hmm. roughly a third of customers were impacted somehow. But we're just going to give the credit to everyone to make it easy. Not a bad move. Yeah, I think it's smart. So again, I, I think you have to do a cost analysis and see, you know, if I'm, if I'm saving all that money on infrastructure and I'm saving all that money on, 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 on people, how much sales can I tolerate to lose and, uh, to make it worth it? Yeah. What's I, the cost of the outage? Simple math problem. Right. Well, it's not very simple, but it's a math problem. Question in the back. So we've touched on a little bit of the regulations involved in some cloud adoption. Do you see any of the legalities changing anytime soon to enable people that perhaps have HIPAA restrictions or, you know, any of the other hundreds of crap that keeps coming along. I love Do your we question see those because, changing? because up until now, you know, we're making the assumptions that the laws are the laws and, uh, you know, we must abide where those laws were made by people and they're made by people who don't necessarily or hadn't had when those laws were made a clear picture of how the you know how the technology will uh, will evolve, and so will laws change as the technology change? Yeah, they have. So judging by the past, you know, I, I foresee that things will change to enable more you know more modern environments, and and, and that not just laws like HIPAA and stuff like that on where you store data. You know, there's the um, all sorts of, you know, how do you access information on mobile devices and what can you keep on that and, and all sorts of, uh, of things of that nature that I think we'll see regulation catching up with technology uh, and technology adapting to regulation at the same time. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a whole demand curve as well, right? If you look at kind of the uh, regulation support in, in, the, in the early Azure days compared to today, right, you, you have to kind of hit your widest base first, but I think... If, if enough customers um, come come out and say we absolutely need uh, HIPAA, for example, um, there's already some investments, uh, for example, in, in uh, Azure Service Bus integration services that are live today that support EDI and, and party management, right? So, you know, the more feedback and kind of uh, you know folks asking for that, I think applies that investment. Uh, a lot of time people don't realize that Microsoft is a huge organization, but like anybody else, there's only a finite uh, number of resources. So I think it's also a, a matter of demand and, and, and how, how many folks are actually looking to use those types of uh, capabilities. Do you, do you think it's had a, a large impact on 
how much cloud has been adopted thus far, or do you, do you see that as minimal? I, I think we're early enough in the cloud adoption cycle that, that that hasn't been a big problem yet. Because if you look at the, the universe of what a, a company has, let's say it's a healthcare company, and, and they have some stuff that falls under HIPAA, there's a ton of stuff that doesn't fall under HIPAA, it, generally, those things are the lower risk, low critical things to begin with, and those are usually the first things that people will move to the cloud. I, I've uh, dealt with organizations, you know, there's compliance and then there's compliance. Yes. Mm. Right? So I was dealing with an organization that wanted to go to Office 365, but they were a multinational, and one of the countries they were working with required that the email that origined from that country resided in that country. Mm. But And they were able to move to Office 365 anyway because they maintained an ADFS connection and synchronized a copy of the mailboxes for that country in that country. They just didn't depend on that server. Yeah. So they were technically compliant because the mail was there. It just didn't actually matter if that server went away. In fact, they were organized in such a way that when that server went away, they could put another one in and it would resynchronize itself to that. They called it the seizure server, <laughs> but technically compliant. Yeah. Right. Now, another thing to, to remember is that the internet, okay, the, not the cloud computing, the internet is something that we take, you know, is like, oh, the internet's been there forever, right? The internet is only a few thousands of days old. That's it. That's it. It's a few thousands of days. You measure it in days. That's how old the internet, the cloud is even younger than that. So when people are concerned about cloud adoption, just think about how long it took to adopt cars, right? And stuff, things that we take for granted today. I think that the rate of adoption of the cloud is faster than the rate of adoption of many other technologies that we see. And the reason is, there, there are two, but they, they basically funnel down to one thing, which is economics. And so it's the ability to innovate and the ability to save. Those two things wind up at the same place, which is economics. Yeah, if Ford had listened to his customers at the time, he'd be working on building faster horses. Somewhere. Yeah. If I asked my customers what they wanted, they'd ask for faster horses. Sure. I got a question here. From an IT perspective, it seems that you know, DBAs and sysadmins seem to be the most you know, concerned about the cloud. Um, ah. What do you think the future holds for those folks, and, and how do you kind of give them a level, level of comfort now? Do you want fries with that? No, <laughs> no I'm sorry. It's, I'm, it's I'm totally kidding. loaded with awesomeness because no one woke up when they were eight, looked out the window on their birthday, and said, I can't wait to change tapes for a living. Right? Right. So they're going to move you up. You know what I really want to do? The, I want a provision the, email address. Yeah. Yes. So excited. Yes. Oh, man. That's I right. want to manage seizure servers. I want to grab so permissions all day. They will move up the food chain and play the role that they, they should be playing, which is truly making sure that the right resources are deployed at the right time. Right. And I'm, I'm right. shameless plug for my talk tomorrow, but uh, we'll come check that out. But I think that the, 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 what we're seeing with the cloud is the industrial revolution of IT. Nothing short of that. It's the industrial revolution of IT. And people that are concerned about it are like the people who were concerned that the mechanical looms are gonna take their job, right, and we're breaking them. That, that, that is the concern, okay? So what, like Brian said, what this would enable is it would enable people to, to IT to really rise to what they can do. And in the, when you're running in the cloud, IT has a really direct impact 
on the bottom line, and I have a whole hour of conversation about this, so I won't do it now, but, um, but we'll have a direct impact on the bottom line of the company in a much more uh, um, visible way than they have today. And you'll see that change and right, exactly. It's not, it's not, not patching cables, you know, in the, that big closet. I've done it, you know, and, uh, and it, it is not about that and, and changing fans. It is really about how do we think about our infrastructure in a way that is detached from all the physical hardware. Are we moving away from the IT guys um, having job security because they're the only ones that know the system? You know the, what I'm talking about. I mean, you, you essentially, yeah. because it's complex and because you know all the stuff, you're the go-to guy. We should just whip is up my slides away? and we can do the talk right now. So this is um, going to be answered this, in your this, talk tomorrow. This avoids that bus problem we've had, right? Yeah. yeah. I, to stay I, I, I don't know that it actually does. There's still an awful lot to know. Sure. It's still a very skilled exercise. So th there is there's a movement now that we're seeing to this phenomenon called DevOps. Mm -hmm. And DevOps is really about blurring the line between development and IT. Mm -hmm. And not having that big firewall where you, you know, you, I'm done coding this, okay, now it's your problem <laughs> to go and deal with it, right? And so what we'll see is a lot more involvement uh, that, that crosses that boundary of what it blurs the line between what is development and what is operations. Yeah. Testing too is going to be affected by that as well. So we'll see, a, and especially when you're working in the cloud in that kind of environment where, where, yeah, you don't have to worry about the machines, but how do you manage and administer at scale? You think that managing a system right now is hard? Try to manage 5,000 servers. How do you do that? Right? Yeah. You think that debugging is hard right now? Right? How do you do that when you have that, that kind of scale? Yeah. How do you monitor that? How do you test a system like that? Right? I can't have a test server you know, that can <laughs> mimic that. So, so how do you do stuff like that? Right? The, the, the cloud is going to change the way that we think about not only running software, but also the way that we think about building and operating software. And, um, and we're seeing that today. And we're seeing that today. It's already started. This is not the pipe dream. This is not, you know, oh, I, I think this is what, that there's an, there's an actual movement towards that. And where that would end, you know, I don't, I don't know. I can't tell you which side of the spectrum it will end. But I, will, I am confident that we will see the blurring line between IT and development because it just won't work any other way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if you're an IT, I mean, you know, be, be proud of the skills that you have, right? If you're an IT pro, em, but embrace the anxiety that you're feeling, right? Because that anxiety is good. And, and you know, I, I would argue that the people at this conference probably represent the 1% of your organization. The, the greatest value you can provide your employer today, in addition to all the things that you do to keep the lights on, is to become an internal advisor on what's coming and how they can help how you can help prepare um, for, for that wave. And someone that has the skill sets that understands kind of the, the, the on-prem kind of traditional approach and how that maps to cloud, extremely, extremely valuable. And guys, I think we're gonna have to leave it there. That's a show. I'd like to thank our esteemed panel. Give it up. The cloud panel. And thanks for listening to .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, PluralSite.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pearlsite.com.
Botnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got to transmit a band by the FCC. <laughs>